Well, good morning, Kettlebrook. Looks like it is uh, getting sunny out there for change, so we're going to see the sunshine today. That's nice. Um, just some housekeeping items before we get started. First of all, uh, one of the things that we do at these very public gatherings is that we take an offering. And if you are a visitor here with us, we just, first of all, want to let you know that that is not intended for you. Uh, this will be taken later on uh, during the service today. And just feel free to let that pass you by. We do have these things, however, in the kind of the, your chairs in front of you called Connect Cards. And if you want to let us know about your visit here with us, your presence here with us, feel free to, to uh, fill one of those out. Uh, you can do it while I'm talking. I'm fine with that. I'm cool with that. Uh, and then when the offering basket comes along, you can just drop it in there. So I uh, want to let that... Uh, you know, you'd be aware of that. The other thing, too, is we are hosting here on the second weekend in June, I believe it's June 9th and 10th, a marriage seminar, okay? Every so often, every 100,000 miles or so in your car, you need to have a tune-up, right? You need to pop that, uh, that hood, look underneath at the engine, get things tuned up, and oftentimes we need to do that in our marriages as well. Your marriage may be humming along. Well, this would really, you know, maybe even improve it. Sometimes your marriage is in crisis. This would give you some tools to uh, help communicate better. It's done by uh, Dr. Marks, Dr. Richard Marks. My wife and I went to his seminar uh, up at Fort Wilderness uh, a few years ago, and it is absolutely amazing. So it's a Friday evening and, and then a Saturday most of the day. I know that the you know that first weekend in June after school gets out is not a great weekend. Uh, a lot of that was out of our control. But if you can, if you can, and if you come, this will be well worth your time. So we want to make you aware of that. And if you can make that a priority, we want to encourage you to do so. Now, how many of you were here last week? All right. Okay. Last week, we kind of ended on a cliffhanger type Episode, you know, kind of the end of season type episode where, where, where you're asking yourself, what's going to happen next? We are in um, connection with some amazing people in Chad, Africa. And uh, as they work there in Chad, Africa, which is their area is almost entirely Muslim, they have seen um, this one woman come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, her code name is Sally for re- reasons of security purposes. And Sally is a widow. She has some children and she lives under the protection and the, on the compound of her uncle who is a fierce, uh, you know, Muslim. And so her placing her faith in Christ has brought great shame and dishonor on the family. And he has not hidden his ire or his anger or his disgust at her. And so he has withheld food from her. He has uh, threatened her. He has uh, even abused her and her kids. Um, so all sorts of terrible things have happened. And last week, at, the only news that we had was that he was literally holding a gun to her head and telling her to recant Jesus. And if she doesn't, that he would kill her. And so that's all that we knew. And so we stopped what we were doing here. Okay, at this at this uh, gathering, and we prayed and gathered together and prayed uh, for Sally. And many of you prayed afterwards. We had about 40 or 50 people after each gathering come up and just pour out their hearts for Sally and on behalf of Sally and her situation there. And so we just got this news last night on on the email. And I want to read portions of this letter 
from our friends in Chad. Dear praying friends, we have such an amazing God. Last Sunday, many of you were on your knees as we trusted our Father with Sally's life. This Sunday, let us rejoice that another woman has decided to follow Jesus. Just this past Friday at our weekly prayer meeting, we lifted up so many prayers to the Father on our behalf of Sally, her children, her sisters, and her persecutor, the rest of her family. And we are also led to pray for all the women who had heard her testimony in February. So Sally had got a chance to speak to this entire school. We prayed that if anyone were still thinking about it, that he would stir their hearts to seek truth. Today, Sally spent most of the day with one of these women. So obviously, her uncle has not gone through on his promises to kill her. He's since stepped back from that, but he's told her that if you stop speaking about Jesus, there'll be no more trouble. It's okay for you to believe in Jesus. Just stop talking about him. And she has said, I can't do that. I can't do that. So she continues to, to talk. Okay, so today Sally spent most of the day with one of these women. She had been thinking about what Sally had shared, and her son had become sick. She prayed, God, if this Jesus is truth, then prove it to me by healing my son. Immediate healing. She needed no more proof, and she has chosen, this other woman has chosen to follow Jesus. As for the uncle, a couple of weeks ago, he threw cold water on Sally's face. Ever since that day, his hand has been swollen in pain. Just a few days ago, he told her that this hand, uh, this, his hand went bad the same day he threw water and he was blaming her, essentially accusing her of witchcraft. She told him she only wants wellness for him and she offered to pray for him. And she told him that if he would believe in Jesus, he would, uh, she would know, uh, she, she knows that he would heal him. This made him very angry and he stormed away. But we thank the Father for Sally's gracious and loving response. May he use all of this for his glory. There have been many more death, uh, there have been no more death threats, but he did lock her up and her faith-filled daughters last Monday until 11.30. She's now 13. Every time we receive news that she is locked up, we pray that Jesus meets her and will strengthen her faith, that her gentleness during all these cruel acts will be a testimony to the one she follows. So there's more to it than that. But isn't that amazing? We serve an amazing God, and please, please, please continue to be in prayer for Sally, her daughters, her sisters, and the other people who are coming to faith in Christ. It's like we get a front row seat on like what God is doing, like almost like in the book of Acts, right? So we are in this series right now that we're calling Distractions. And the main premise of this uh, whole series is that God has plans and purposes and intentions for each and every one of our lives. Okay, plans for our good, for our success, to know him and grow and walk with him and be used by him for his plans in the world. Okay, but oftentimes we aren't able to step into those plans. We're not able to realize them because we get distracted along the way. We get distracted by things like looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for affirmation and acceptance inappropriately from people when, because we fail to believe that God has loved us, accepted us, and validated us, and affirmed us in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. We get distracted by things like discontentment because we fail to believe that God has already given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. And we focus on the things that we don't have rather than on what we do have. We looked at the nation of Israel, and we saw that the nation of Israel, if they were anything at all, they were a nation that was prone to distraction. They were this this people that God had chosen to be his own unique, called-out 
people, his representatives in the world. And the only thing that they were supposed to do were to be unique and represent his ways and his priorities and his values. And they said, no, and kept saying, no, 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 we want to be, we want to be just like the nations around us. And they got carried off into all sorts of idolatry and all sorts of other things. And we talked about the fact that their story is essentially a reflection of our story. That we are the people of God. And we are uniquely called out to be his representatives in the world. But we get distracted by all sorts of things. We want to be just like the people around us rather than being distinct and different. And letting Jesus' values become our values and allow us to be distinct. Today, we're going to look at a very familiar story. Uh, We're going to look at a classic illustration of distractions. It's a story that's found in your New Testaments. Um, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 14, 22. We're going to read verses 22 to 33. If you have a red Bible, you'll find that on page 692. And this story serves as an amazing example of what a life following Jesus looks like and how the distractions of our circumstances can keep us from stepping into the life that God has for each and every one of us. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been just almost absolutely paralyzed or immobilized by the circumstances in your life? Where you just almost couldn't move, you were just overwhelmed, maybe with fear or dread or something like that at all, and they just prevented you from taking another step. I had a situation kind of like that, just a, uh, a, a couple of years ago. Now, growing up, I need to let you know, just a little, little, little caveat here. I'm going to make my excuses beforehand. Okay? I was, I was not afraid of heights growing up. Okay? I had no problem with heights. I would climb up cliffs and stuff like that. I would jump out of, par- out of perfectly good airplanes and go parachuting. One of my favorite things to do was go up to Adam's Friendship uh, near the Delta and go jumping off a, a train trellis like this. That's my arms kind of dangling down there. And, and we would just do stuff like this. So, like, heights didn't used to be an issue for me. But something happens after you turn 40. Like... Between 40 and 50, like a switch goes on and says, you know, your body is not made of rubber anymore. And, and so, you know, they became, I began to like dread heights. And then I'll be honest right now, I don't care for heights at all. You know, we'll be at the Willis Tower in downtown Chicago. And, you know, they built those overhangs, those glass encased balconies. And the kids are out there looking down a hundred stories and like, dad, dad, come out here. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'll take the picture safely away from 10 feet away. And, and this sort of thing happened. We were hiking in this place called Red River Gorge in Kentucky uh, in the spring break a couple of years ago. And we were just hiking along. And then part of the path, part of the trail that we were to go on was this like land bridge that was about 300 feet across. And it was about, I kid you not, as wide as this stage. It was about 15 feet wide. Okay, there it is. There's a land bridge. And on each side of this land bridge, it just dropped off into oblivion, you know. And so in order to get going on the trail, you had to like cross this land bridge, which it's wide enough. And so there's Matthew, my son Matthew and his friend Keaton, and they're like running across the land bridge, no problem. And there's no guardrails on here. Some insane insurance reason that they said if they put up guardrails there, they had to put them up everywhere. And then if someone falls and they're going to sue and stuff like that. So like they just had no guardrails nowhere. And so they're halfway across and they look behind and they see me and I'm like, And they're like, Dad, 
Come on, come you just like walk across. And I'm like, I don't know. I I think I'll wait for you guys in the car, you know, and stuff. And they're like, come on, Dad. It's like, I mean, literally, it's, it's almost as wide as half a road, you know. And so I realized that if I locked my eyes on one of the trees on the other side and just looked at that, I could take like one foot in front of the other. And I've, it's so funny because it's as wide as the stage. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and, and I thought, I realized that. If I looked around, if I began to like enjoy this, enjoy the scenery, I began to sink down, you know. So it's like, okay, keep your eyes focused on the tree, focused on the tree. And I just kept on going. And I was eventually able to make it across if I kept my eyes focused on that tree. The verse that we've been using for this whole series that we're looking at is Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. And it says, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy sent before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of the book of Hebrews alludes to the fact that there is this direct correlation between fixing our eyes on Jesus and being able to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. That when we make Jesus our focal point, when we make Jesus and his ways and his teachings the singular focus of our life, we're able to grow and make forward progress in our Christian life. Regardless of what might be going on around us, what our circumstances may be. Much like my experience at Red River Gorge, there are going to be times in our journey when our circumstances, our immediate situation and surroundings are going to be so difficult as to threaten to paralyze us or tempt us to give up along the journey. And at those times, the writer of Hebrews encourages us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And the narrative that we're going to read today is a a classic illustration of this principle. It's this principle of keeping your eyes focused on Jesus, and it's really a living metaphor of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So let's read Matthew 14, 22 through 33. You might be familiar with this. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side when he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you... Peter replied, let me, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And so this whole scene takes 
place on the Sea of Galilee, which really isn't a sea at all. It's actually a freshwater lake. We don't have an equivalent here in Wisconsin that kind of comes close to this. It's about a third of the size of Lake Winnebago, okay? And uh, it's surrounded on almost all sides by these high, steep, you know, hills or cliffs. And inside of these, these, uh, these hills are these canyons, and these canyons serve as great airways and great air passages for storms to blow in and through and create waves on this lake. So the Sea of Galilee is, is infamous for having its you know, squalls and storms and stuff like that. And this is kind of the situation that they find themselves in. Um, Jesus has just gotten done with this huge day of ministry. They have, uh, you know, they have fed 5,000 people, and he had just gotten news that his, his cousin John the Baptist had been killed, and so he is looking for some alone time. And he goes up, intentionally goes up on the mountainside to spend some time praying. And he tells his, his disciples, get in the boat and meet me on the other side. And, uh, and he knows that there is going to be a storm. Now, it says about the fourth watch of the night. Now, this is 3 a.m., okay? They have been in the boat straining at the oars all night long. No dramamine, no sleep. Uh, you know, seven, the, the Sea of Galilee can be known for seven-foot rollers, you know, and so they're going up and down, and they have just had it. They have been working hard all night. They are probably delirious. And at this time, in the middle of the night, in the, in the lightning, they see a figure coming towards them. Okay? Can you imagine this? And so they, understandably, freak out. I mean, what would any of you do if you had this situation happen? You know, we would all freak out. And of course, they come to the only logical conclusion that they come to. It's got to be a ghost. All right? And Jesus says, don't freak out. You know, actually said, don't be afraid. It's me. And Peter Sensing that this is a unique moment in time, that if this really is their leader, if this really is their friend, then he says, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. And there's no indication at all that Jesus is miffed at this request. He doesn't chide Peter or he doesn't, you know, yell at him for, you know, don't tempt the Lord or something like that. He says, all right, come. 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 I think Jesus had a smile on his face. He's, he's, he's glad that someone's up for the challenge. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. And for a moment, he is doing it. As, soon as, as long as he's got his eyes locked on Jesus, he is doing it. He is actually walking on water. He is experiencing something that none of us will ever experience in our life. No human being has ever done what Peter has done. He's experiencing a living miracle. But then he looks around him, and he's like, there's a storm, and there's lightning, and there's waves, and he says, I I can't do this. And as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, he begins to sink, and he cries out, Jesus, save me. And Jesus grabs him, and it says, you a little faith, why do you doubt? And I don't think Jesus is saying this in the type of, you know, address like a, 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 you know, a a father in a football game. Why couldn't you have scored more points? You know, it's not that I think Jesus was just like, you were doing so good, you know, almost like a parent with their, with their kid who's walking for the first time. They take their few first steps and they fall and you're like, oh, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. And I think that in my sanctified imagination, that's what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's like, oh, you were doing so good, Peter. You were doing so good. And in this short passage illustrates 
some really, really important principles for us who follow Jesus. Pastor and author John Ortberg does a wonderful job of unpacking some of these principles in his book. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. That's the title of the book. And it's the main idea of the book. If you want to walk on water, if you want to have these amazing experiences with Jesus, then you've eventually got to get out of your boat. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to get out of whatever your realm of safety and security is. And when you do that, you'll be able to see what walking on water is like. And some of the principles that John expands upon in following Jesus are that, number one, there is always a call. There's always an invitation. And then number two, in the midst of that invitation, there's always fear. There's always this built-in natural resistance. And then three, there's always a decision that has to be made and eventually to step out. And number four, there is always a changed life as a result. That our lives are changed. This is the pattern that, that God almost always uses in people's lives. He invites us out. There's fear, there's reluctance, there's resistance, but then there's a decision to say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow what God is telling me to do. And when we do that, there is a changed life that is a result of that. Now, in Peter's case, there's this this additional caveat that in order to continue to follow Jesus, you need to have your eyes fixed on Jesus. And if we are going to continue to journey with Jesus on the road that he has for us, we need to continue to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not on our external, external circumstances. Because if we look at our circumstances, we're going to begin to doubt. We're going to get scared. We're going to say, this is impossible. What I'm trying to do is impossible. And if we do take our eyes off of Jesus, then the one who calls us out of our comfort zone, we're going to start to sink. Because for Jesus, or for, for Peter, the storm was his reality. It raged all around him. It was impossible not to focus on it. And whenever Jesus invites you to follow him, there's going to be a storm of some kind. Remember, Jesus told his disciples to get in the boat. In fact, the actual Greek word means that he ordered them to do it. There is a moral imperative. Get in the boat. He told them to do. And all the while he knew that there was going to be a storm that was coming. Jesus knew this ahead of time. In another parable that Jesus tells, he says, he compares and contrasts two people who one does what Jesus says and one doesn't do what Jesus says. And he says, when the storms of life come, he doesn't say, if the storms of life comes, he says, when they come, then they, storms are inevitable in life. They are going to happen whether you follow Jesus or not. And it's interesting in Jesus' parable, he says that the people who weathered the storms, who got through the storms, were the people who made the words and the teachings of Jesus their central focus and priority in life. And they actually did what he said. And that's exactly a picture of what Peter is doing. He's keeping his eyes focused on Jesus, and as long as he does that, he doesn't sink. Now, it's important to notice here that the storms, they're not distractions from the mission like we've been talking about the weeks past, like entertainment or social media or television. They're not diversions from the evil one to get us to doubt God's goodness and become discontent with what he's already provided with us. Storms are the reality that we are in when we journey with Jesus. 
It is the inevitable difficulties we will experience when we decide to be on mission with him and respond to his commands and to his invitations. Jesus said in John 16, he says, in this world you are going to have trouble. But then he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. What might be some of the storms in your life that cause you to take your eyes off Jesus? What are the circumstances or the problems or the difficulties in your life right now which you are facing, which have a tendency to distract you from Jesus? It could be that maybe you are a young mom and you are distracted by the storm in your life. And whenever you have young children and babies, you're in a storm. You're in a storm of diapers. You're in a storm of housework. You're in a storm of, of chores and never ending cleaning and stuff like that. And you might be threatened to just, just cave into these circumstances rather than remember the fact that your objective is to raise these young children to be world changers, to follow Jesus. When we first started Kettlebrook, it's interesting, about 12 years ago, the kids that are in our high school ministry right now were about three or four years old, you know? And now they've grown up and they're in high school. And I don't know if you know this, folks, but the most exciting ministry at Kettlebrook Church these days is in our high school ministry. It's amazing what God is doing amongst our youth at Kettlebrook, my wife leads a uh, small group in the, the high school ministry, and she's got all these gals, and she thought she had three or four of them that have indicated that they are interested in missions and going to be missionaries when they grow up. And so she said, maybe this summer, what I'll do is I'll just do a, a Bible study with some of these girls, and we'll just go walk through the Bible and talk, look at God's global purposes for the world, what he's been doing from the very beginning of time, and what he wants to see happen, to see all nations, all tongues, all tribes, you know, become, have access to the gospel. And she said, 12 gals sign up who are interested in missions. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Now, that, that doesn't happen unless there have been 12 moms behind the scenes who have been just continually and faithfully keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus in the midst of the storms of life, of raising kids. I got a call two weeks ago from a, a, a high schooler in our, um, in our church who said, Mike, can I, can I meet with you? And I was like, sure, yeah, I'd love to. Let's go meet at, at uh, Culver's. And so we're like, you know, I'm like, I wonder what's up. Is he having trouble with his parents? Is he, you know, facing temptation? You know, I didn't know what it was going to be about. I met with this, with this guy and he sat down with me. He said, okay, Mike, uh, okay, I've... I've got friends that are not believers. I've, I've won their respect. They, they know that I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, how do I tell them about Jesus? I'm like, that's a great question. I love that question. I love questions. I love questions like that. And I'm like, I love it. Here's this high school kid who gets it more than most of us adults get it. 
And he's like, I've been doing all this work behind the scenes, you know, having relationships with friends at school and building their confidence in me and their ability to confide in me. And now I really want to tell them about Jesus. How do I do that in in an effective way? And he's, the only reason that he's able to get to this point is because for 15 years behind the scenes, there's been two parents in the storms of life. It began with the diapers and then it began taking the, to, the, to the soccer practices and the football practices and everything else. And then it began, you know, with the police calls late at night and stuff like that. And, but eventually they're faithfully able to stay in there and keep their eyes fixed on Jesus and say, we want to pour into this kid so that he can become all that God intended them, him to be. Maybe your storm is the storm of work which threatens to engulf you in your life perhaps if you as you've journeyed with jesus the place that god has you right now your ministry which is the place you go to from eight to five every day that's your ministry in case there's any questions about that that's your your ministry is where you work is it's so time consuming so demanding that the temptation is to take your eyes off of jesus to forget his promises to forget his invitation to bring his very presence there with you and you may begin to sink under the pressure of deadlines and goals and objectives and making your next number that you begin to sink in the sea of corporate efficiency and progress and you forget that the whole reason that god has you there in the first place is to be a light and a living representative an example uh, a representative of the king of kings and the lord of lords that's why you're there in the first place and it's easy to get so overwhelmed in corporate america you take your eyes off of jesus and you're like peter you just yell out and say jesus help me save me and just like he did with peter he will reach out and save you Remember, in order to continue to journey with Jesus, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and not on our circumstances. So what does it mean? What? You might be like, Mike, okay, that all sounds really well and good, but what does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? How do I do that throughout the week or throughout the day? Let me just give you three things. There's three things up here. We're going to put them on the board. How do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in the storms of life? Number one is remember his purposes. Remember his purposes. God has global purposes for the world, and he invites us to be a part of them. Jesus said that, uh, that this gospel will be preached to every nation, tongue, and tribe, and then the end will come. He sent us out as his representatives to make disciples of all nations, and we step into those purposes. Remember his promises. His promises are not, are that his plans and purposes, they're not going to fail. We are on the winning team. When we align ourselves with Jesus, we align ourselves with the winning team. As my friend says to me, he says, Mike, I've read the end of the book. We win. Okay? So his, Jesus' global purposes will prevail. And so in the, even in the midst of the storms, you can tell yourself, listen, this may look bad, this may be hard, but God's purposes are going to prevail in this situation. This is what happened in the Old Testament, okay? In the Old Testament, Israel sent spies in to scout out the land that, that God had promised them as of their inheritance. And they scouted out the land and ten people came back and they said, uh, yeah, that's right, it is great land. Wow, it's a really, really good land. But we can't do it because they're too big. The enemy's too big. And there were two guys, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua said, it's... 
doesn't matter how big they are. They could be 30 feet tall for all we know, for all we care. It doesn't matter because you know what? God has promised us this land, and so we're going to win. We're going to take it over. That was how they thought. They they they, They remembered his promises. David, you know, as he was this little shepherd boy, and the Israelites are facing off against their enemies, the Philistines. And, you know, the Philistines are coming out and talking smack against God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. And they're like, oh, you guys are a bunch of weaklings. Your God is weak. And it's just, it's just looking bad. And they're dragging God's name through the dirt. And David, this little shepherd boy, who's about 12 years old, he says, is anyone going to fight this guy? Is anyone going to fight Goliath? And they're like, mm-hmm, we're all scared. And David, and David is like, do you not remember God's promises? He said, we will win. He will fight for us. And so he goes out. David goes out. This little 12-year-old boy goes out and fights him. Just nails the, kid, the, the giant with the, with the slingshot. And I love it. After that, you know what he does? He goes over and takes the, the giant sword out of his scabbard. And he cuts the guy's head off. And this is, see, this is how you know that the Bible is true, folks. Okay? This is how you know the Bible is true. David's 12 years old. He does what every 12-year-old boy would do. He takes the giant's head and takes it home. He's like, this is my head. I'm taking this home. No one else gets this head. You know, and he remembers God's promises. Okay, he says they're not going to fail. And then, lastly, we remember His presence. That Jesus said, "I will never leave you nor forsake you." In the midst of the storms, of the circumstances of your life, as you journey with Jesus, He has said, "I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the very end of the age." He says in Matthew 28. And so when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, remember these three things. Remember his purposes, remember his promises, and remember his presence. We have some amazing families here at Kettlebrook Church who have responded to Jesus' invitation to step out of their comfort zone of a nice, safe, predictable family and walk on water with Jesus as they take in children into their family some adopted children, some foster kids. And believe me, whenever you add an additional child into your life, whether it's your own or whether it's somebody else's, it is a storm. I'm sure I was a storm when I was added into my parents' life. And these can be wonderful kids, but it's always, there's always an adjustment. There's always a disruption. And maybe there is a storm or two that can blow up from time to time. And occasionally you might find yourself sinking under the weight of it all. And I want to encourage you as your pastor this morning. If you are in that situation, if you are there, continue to journey with Jesus and fix your eyes on Jesus and not on your circumstances. You are doing kingdom work. Remember his purposes for the world. Remember his promises that they will not fail. Remember his presence is right there with you in the midst of that storm and he said i will never leave you for nor forsake you and if you do that you will see miracles happen in your lives and maybe in the lives of the children that you are loving on and are so wonderful i remember a friend of mine when i was growing up her name was kim lunberger and it was very interesting because kim lunberger was a member of our youth group but she lived with the Boswell family. And so that was always really confusing to me as a kid, as a high school. I'm like, oh, okay. She's Kim Lewinberger, but Bob Boswell is her, is her brother. How does that work? I don't get it, you know. And it never occurred to me as a high schooler that she was a foster child. 
living with the Boswell family. And it was just so natural. She was just Kim. She was Kim, Kim Lundberg. But this family, the Boswell family in our church, has decided to go on mission with Jesus and step out of the comfort zone of a nice, safe, you know, predictable family and invite in Kim and her brother. And because of that choice, Kim got taken to church every Sunday. And Kim saw prayer at the meals every, every evening. And Kim eventually went off and went to Wheaton College. And now Kim is a beautiful, wonderful mom of five of her own children. You can put a picture up there. Up there. There's Kim and her, her husband, Joel. And there are five kids. And they, I don't have a recent picture because they just adopted two little girls from China as well, making seven kids. And you know what? I, I don't know what would have happened with Kim's story if she was not taken in by the Boswell family when she was seven years old and allowed to live with them until she went to college. But this family, because they decided to step out of their boat and journey with Jesus, they saw the miracles happen. And Kim's a miracle and a testimony to that. What are the storms in your life, the circumstances that threaten to make you sink and become immobile? I'm going to pray, and then um, we're just going to give some time to you to consider and contemplate two questions up here that you might be able to, to pray through and think through. We're going to just give you a few moments to do that. And um, it's our prayer and heart's desire is that God would speak to you as you think about these two questions and about the story that we just read. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you call us out of the boat, out of our comfort zones to be on mission with you. Somehow, in some way. And it's always going to involve risk. It's always going to involve disruption. uh, Whatever the invitation is. And some of us here this morning may find ourselves in the middle, middle of a storm. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how to take the next step, Lord. And if anyone is here and they're distracted, they're threatened to be overwhelmed, overcome by the storms that are swirling around them, I pray that you would give them the ability and the capacity to fix their eyes on you. To remember your purposes, to remember your promises in Scripture that your purposes will not fail. And that they would remember that your presence is right there with them in the middle of the storm. I pray that they might, as they fix their eyes on you, that they might be able to see the miracles happen in lives of people around them as you touch them for your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name.